You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hi, everyone, and thank you for coming down tonight on this rainy evening. My name's Erina. I'm the program coordinator at M Pavilion. I'd like to begin this event by acknowledging the Yalukut Willam as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. The Yalakut Willam are part of the Bungarung, one of the five major language groups of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their lands, their language, and their ancestors, past, present, and to the future. Serenity never ceded. Now I'll hand over to Tamsin O'Neill, editor of Green Magazine, to introduce our speakers. Hello, good evening, everyone. Thanks for coming along on such a wet night. <laughs> really understand how hard it is to get out on days like this. So thank you all. I'm going to, we've got Ross Harding and Joost Becker tonight. I'm going to, we're going to start with Ross. Um, so I'm going to introduce him first and then I will introduce Joost after that. Um, Ross Harding is a creative sustainability consultant with a background in um, academia in mechanical engineering. He uh, gives advice on self-sufficiency for projects ranging from houses to city master plans. He's the co-founder of Off The Grid Festival and he once threw a, a solar-powered party for Vivian Westwood. Um, Ross, hand over. Cheers. Um, I might just start a timer because uh, I'll probably go over time. Um, I organised my thoughts for the talk tonight on um, when I was out for a run today. So just like when I'm running, I'm a bit pessimistic and negative to begin with, and then I sort of level out towards the middle, and then I get really optimistic and dreamy towards the end. Um, so, yeah, I think um, uh, acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land was a nice place to start, and I think taking care of this place for 60,000 years, year after year, um, uh, get, making it the same or better each year is a pretty um, amazing history that we have here. And then I think it's interesting to look at what we're leaving future generations. And we've got, you can't really see it from in here, but Eureka Tower is just over here. And so what we're leaving future generations is um, Greater Melbourne requires a um, hundred times filling Eureka Tower with coal every year to power the city. 40 times you have to fill Eureka Tower with oil to, uh, um, for transport in the city. And uh, 30 times you would fill Eureka Tower with gas for mainly heating water and cooking, basically. Um, we would fill Eureka Tower 50 times every year with waste. Uh, nine of that is organic waste. And we would fill Eureka Tower a thousand times with water that we consume, fresh drinking water, that uh, about 84% of that we send out to the sea without treating it and reusing it. So it's, yeah, pretty, um, pretty intense sort of um, way to start, but um, yeah, it gets a bit more optimistic. So basically, um, we're kind of going to delve into how the sort of sustainability scene kind of works from my point of view um, in Melbourne and in Australia in terms of like architecture and buildings and new buildings 
and then um, talk a little bit about what I have learned along the way, and then something we're working on in the future. So basically, um, I find there's quite a lot of bullshit in the scene, basically, um, and most of it's focused on new buildings, um, when a lot of where we really need to focus is transforming the existing city. And so um, a perfect place to start with this is by walking into um, CH2 in the, the, the head of city of Melbourne, and there's a plaque there that says that it uses 87% less energy than the average building. And it actually uses three times more energy than the average building. And I think there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, focus on rating systems and these green benchmarks and things like that, and there's actually not a lot of real things really happening and progressing. And so I think where we're kind of at, in my mind, is that a lot of people want to talk about um, their opinion on the solution. And I think a lot of people think that it's either the government um, or it's businesses that are uh, holding us back um, or that we need to move as individuals. And from my point of view, it's actually all three. So it's actually we just actually, and that's part of the problem that I found with this city, is that looking into it, there's no strategy for, say, 2030 or 2040 or even 2050 for the CBD or Greater Melbourne on how to get to zero carbon, zero waste or water neutral. And um, so that was kind of shocking for me. Um, and basically, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of councils at the moment that are, um, have announced a climate emergency. And um, their planning requirements are not in line with that. They're allowing developers to build junk. You know, it's like, it's they're, they're, a lot of these buildings that are going up that we're marketing and talking about are sustainable are maybe 10% better than the absolute minimum that we will allow people to do. And that's still 90% bad, okay? So, um, but to slightly level it out a little bit, um, my um, area of work is basically on the financial viability of how to make projects zero impact. So 100% renewable energy strategies, uh, water neutrality strategies, and zero waste strategies for anything from a house to a city block master plan, basically. Um, and for the last roughly like 12 years, I've just been punching numbers on projects, looking at new buildings and what's possible, basically. How do you get to 100% uh, renewable or zero carbon? How do you get to water neutral? How do you get to zero waste? What is the technology required to get us there? How much do all of those things cost? And then how are they for an investment? How long does it take for them to pay for themselves? Is it logical? Is it not? And what um, I found over time is that it kind of became really glaringly obvious that it's super cost effective. All of these initiatives, they pay for themselves in 10 years. We're not looking for anything new. People often want to talk about a new piece of technology that they found on a blog post. And it, from my experience, trying to integrate this technology into new buildings, developers are not really looking for new innovation. That's a risk. So anything you see that's just been launched is quite often not going to be in a new project for 10 years because people rarely want to do new things. So basically where my head's at after kind of 
over a decade of failure was um, to stop trying to focus so much on sustainability and innovation and trying to make something super exciting and drive things forwards in this way, but to try and make it shit boring, basically, to, to normalize it, to raise the benchmark from what base case is right now, from being 10% better than the absolute minimum, to reset the benchmark to something that has no negative impact on the environment. So basically, um, I, I run a two-person business. Will, who's not here tonight, but um, he works with me. I employ one engineer. And between the two of us, because we realized there was no strategy for this, you know, Greater Melbourne consists of 32 councils. And we realized, yeah, there's no energy, water, and waste strategy. And so we, and I, for five, I moved to Melbourne five years ago. For five years, I've been knocking on the door of a number of councils saying, we would like to do this strategy to try and work it out. And kind of got shut down and never really got the funds to do it. So I just sort of gave up on trying to get money to do it. And I just decided I'd get on with it and just do it. So it was sort of, it's been a, over a year and a half, about, um, October 2018, we basically started to um, calculate what does the Greater Melbourne actually consume in terms of energy, water, waste, what would the initiatives be required to get us there, how would we get there, and we basically found that it's possible. You could make Greater Melbourne a self-sufficient city, and you could do it by 2030, and it would cost about $100 billion, which sounds like a shitload of money. But it's an investment, not a cost. And it pays for itself in less than 10 years. Another way of looking at it is that it's basically about one-fifth of Melbourne's superannuation pool. So it's, instead of even needing more than a majority of the population to vote on this, we could, 20% of us could vote on this by putting our funds in that place. So the way, and, and what I've found as well is like, there's a lot of, um, it's really exciting at the moment to see that there's more public support to try and push things. But something that's really on my mind is if we don't necessarily have a lot of trust in the government to do something right now, even if they finally do click over and agree, will they know what to do? Will they, will they actually put the funds in the right place and do the right strategy? And so... The reason I've decided to focus on cities is that basically we don't have enough time for countries to agree on this. And what we're seeing internationally is cities are moving forwards independent of what their national politics is. You look at the states and Trump, they're backwards. California's moving forwards. New York's moving forwards. Cities are moving forwards independent of their national politics. And so um, basically... I might quickly go through the 10 initiatives. We've basically, the way we've looked at it is there's 10 steps required to get there. And rather than, the reason, part of the reason why we're calling it a new normal <clears throat> is that it's made up of 10 things that are not new. They're basically happening in other cities from around the world. The 10 things are, we need to electrify the entire transport system. The, the, there's no way we're gonna get to a zero carbon city if we're continuing to move ourselves and things around this city on oil-based combustion engines, basically. So we actually need to transform 
the entire transport system to be electric. Our trams are, and trains are mostly electric. The bus system needs to go entirely electric. All individual cars need to go electric. And rather than everyone sell their car and buy a new one, we actually need to transform our existing cars. I'm just going to check time. How are we doing here? Lost up. 12 minutes. Okay. I'll speed up a little bit. So basically, the way that we pay for that is that if, if you look at how much it actually costs the city currently with air pollution from internal combustion engine cars, it basically pays for the conversion of about half the cars in the city. And we need to halve the cars in the city anyway. The next step is to focus on energy storage. And a lot of people are focused on batteries in houses. Um, this is actually one of the last things that we would recommend from a financial perspective on a house. Um, it's about 10 or 15 things you would do before that. And actually where we'll see the energy storage system in cities is that cars are now coming out with vehicle-to-grid uh, charging capacity. So we'll actually have a, di um, a distributed energy storage system across the city through our transport network. And that will be enough to basically provide storage for the entire city. Then we need to electrify all buildings, basically. So to do that, um, it means basically getting off gas for hot water, getting um, off gas for cooking. Um, then we need to uh, make it mandatory to actually transform all of our existing buildings. So this is coming through in different cities around the world, mandatory retrofits. When renters get out, they have to upgrade. Only, only cost-effective initiatives, but they, there are certain things that must be upgraded. Um, then there's basically, the, there's enough, so to get to, if you start to think about how much solar energy we could actually generate in the city, there's, um, there's a website where you can actually find per council the roof area that you could generate, basically. And based on current electrical demand, it's almost exactly, could, you could power, just from available roof space, you could power the entire city. So the numbers that we've um, used, uh, we've just assumed half of that to be kind of conservative about it. The rest of the energy required is basically from outside the city, which is wind turbines, which is equivalent to 2% of the state of Victoria. And the additional solar is equivalent to the um, area that the coal-fired power plants in the Trobe Valley currently take up. So spatially, it's not that crazy. Um, then, basically, the, it is kind of crazy that, to start with that we shoot in perfectly good drinking water. Um, this is a sort of illogical thing, but actually, the infrastructure is set up in this way, and it's... It's not basically all that cost-effective to double-pipe the entire city. So what's happening in a lot of cities around the world is that they're basically treating and reusing sewer water. And in, we live in the driest uh, continent in the world, and for some reason we're too good to treat and reuse our water, while all water in the world is recycled. It's been recycled for millions of years. Um, that's happening in Singapore, that's happening in London. In Amsterdam, the water's been through 10 people before they drink it. In London, it's been through five. It's true, it's the same water, it's just, yeah, H2O. Um, then, basically, the next one is um, uh, waste to energy. So, there's a lot of talk around waste to energy. 
I'm generally pretty against the combustion of plastics and the combustion of waste in general, but um, taking uh, food waste and organic waste and digesting it anaerobically to create biogas um, is a very logical initiative. And so um, part of the strategy is to integrate that within the city. Um, then to end landfill, we basically need to bring in regulation to uh, end the concept of landfill, which is basically ending the, um, make it illegal to sell any product that's destined for landfill. Those first nine initiatives, are, um, they're just about the existing city, okay? Um, they, they're all quite logical and fit within the city. The last of the 10 is to basically bring in a mandatory net zero code. So what we've done is we put this together as a report. We're workshopping it at the NGV for design week. Um, we've assembled 15 of the most influential architects in Melbourne to come to my house on Tuesday night, actually. Um, and we're asking them to come up with a rendering each of how to connect this technology with culture to embrace this as an easy way. So, I mean, pretty much the theory is that, in my mind, old school environmentalism is a minority of people telling everyone else that they're wrong and, and trying to convince everyone else that, that, that they know the answer. To me, we don't have enough time to care, for everyone to care. And basically, we need to move forwards even if everyone doesn't give a shit. And so what we're actually doing is trying to work out a way with the architects to integrate these various initiatives into the city in a way that basically connects this technology with culture to make it easier for everyone. And in effect, it's basically trying to empathize with the people that don't give a shit. Um, I might leave it at that, but um, thanks very much for having me. Thanks, Ross. It's simple, really. Not that hard. Um, I should say that um, I'm going to open up for questions at the end of um, Yost's talk, so keep, keep thinking about, you know, what you might want to ask either of these blokes. Um, I don't know if I even need to introduce Yost. I'm sure you all know him. I'm sure you all know of him, and if you don't, then from now on you will because he never stops. Um, and we first came across Yoast in 2008, just after launching Green Magazine, when he built the first greenhouse in Federation Square. And at the time, that was groundbreaking, but he has gone on to, um, to be involved in all sorts of industries, in all sorts of ways. Um, he is always pushing the envelope with sustainability, um, whether it be as a florist or as a designer or as a restaurateur, as an inventor, um, as a consultant. He uh, has been described by the New York Times as the zero waste poster boy, I believe. <laughs> Yoast Backer. Thank you. Yeah, that was... Uh 2008, that was a crazy year. It's so much easier to do crazy shit when no one knows who you are. It makes it a lot harder to do crazy stuff when people know who you are because they're, oh, here he comes, what's he going to do now? <laughs> so I'm going to talk about greenwash. And I'm, a, I'm a, quite a practical guy. I grew up on a farm. I kind of try and make stuff myself. I started, my brothers couldn't weld. So when I was 10, 11, they used to wait when machines broke down on the farm. 
they'd wait for me to come out of school and I'd have to fix the plough or the planting machine or... And I kind of really enjoyed the fact that they relied on me to, to do that stuff. And I got a real appreciation for steel because steel I thought was really resilient and, um, you know, I, I lo love finding it in recycling yards and I made sculptures out of it for art and school and, you know, fell in love with the material really. And um, it's, it, we're talking about greenwashing and actually a few weeks ago I was at a friend's place. I've, I'm, I tend to fall in love with people that have got recycling yards and there's guys that I've met 35 years ago that I'm still friends with today. They're just a, they, they tend to be humans unlike any other. They're usually, because they're usually dealing with the stuff that nobody really wants to deal with, you know, the stuff that we throw away. They're all passionate and they're all, yeah, most of them are some of my closest friends now. And I was at a guy called Ward Pefferich, who um, actually the whole interior of the first greenhouse, all the greenhouses actually have materials from him. And he set up a company called Waste Converters about 20 years ago. After spending time in Holland, actually, he was chasing a Dutch girl in Holland and she broke off. But in the meantime, he worked at a recycling yard and thought, I'm going to go back to Australia and do the same thing there. So he makes uh, pallets out of timber that's recycled. Millions of them, actually. It's, he's got a really successful business in Dandenong and rings me up every time something unusual comes in. You might want to use this or you might like this. And this time was a little bit different. I came and I saw this huge pile of stuff. And uh, I said, what's going on there? You know, how come, how come that's not getting ground up into compost or how come that's not being turned into pellets? And he goes, oh, don't talk to me about it. It's engineered timber. And coming from Holland, the Dutch are in love with it, or Europe is in love with engineered timber, which is basically, I think, a term people look at it and go, oh, engineered timber, somebody's really smart to design this, so it must be good, right? But it's usually just a whole bunch of layers of stuff. Usually the top layer is a natural-looking material, and then it's a layer of plastic and, you know, some kind of exotic shit, and then something else, and then something natural, and then... But all these materials are impossible to recycle. And it just made me think... You know, it's 12 years since the, the, I did the greenhouse where it was all about using materials that can be endlessly recycled, recycled or can biodegrade. And here we are actually going further away from that common sense of designing something that can be recycled. And um, I just wanted to talk about that because we are introducing so many things and elements into materials and there's not really anyone policing it. Um, Julian Creed did a, wrote a brilliant book called Poison Planet. You should read it. It'll blow your mind. But it talks about how many chemicals exist, man-made chemicals exist. I call them man-made because they almost always are. Women wouldn't be stupid enough to make half this stuff. And, um, you know, this, no one polices whether, what this does to us. No one actually, you know, fire retardants in mattresses. Who came up with that idea? Uh, you know, a mattress has to, you have to be able to put a cigarette on it for five minutes and it can't combust, well, but we want to make mattresses out of plastic. Well, then you need to add fire retardants. And then, you know, the WHO says, oh, the fire retardant that you're using is carcinogenic, causes cancer, you know. And, but this stuff still goes on. And, you know, we spend a third of our lives on it. So I just wanted to talk about how, how hard it is to actually try and work out what the fuck is in the stuff that we wear, the stuff that we use, the stuff that we build with, and it just is harder today than what it was 15 years ago. And it is definitely harder than what it was 50 years ago. Um, friends that demolish houses and are in the recycling business love places that were built 50, 60 years ago. 
because they're so easy to pull apart. They're so easy to, uh, th there's huge value in them because the materials in there are, you know, go into furniture. Some of the best hardwoods for furniture now come out of demolition uh, waste. And a lot of the bricks are easy to recycle. The mortar's easy to recycle. The concrete doesn't have chemicals in it. Um, you know, another example is uh, waffle slab, you know, which is being sold as a sustainable um, way to build. 45% of the houses in Victoria are on waffle slabs, which is basically concrete poured over styrofoam blocks. People that have permits to recycle concrete, concrete can be recycled very easily. And it's actually, um, I built a house in King Lake that had 100% recycled concrete slab, including the cement. No virgin material went into that slab. That was 100% recycled. And the EPA who give the licenses that allow people to recycle concrete will not allow concrete to be recycled that contains styrofoam for obvious reasons. It gets airborne and blows everywhere. So we've got 45% of the houses being built today in Victoria built on waffle slabs where the concrete will not be able to be recycled. You know, stuff like this. And it's um, frustrating. And the way that I go about it is I just research the crap out of everything and often just go back to basics and just do it my own way. And that's how I ended up building my own place. Everybody said, you can't do it the way that you want to do it. It's not how you're supposed to build. So I just decided to build the place myself with backpackers. And, um, you know, here we are 12 years later, not one drop. Uh, we've got a, a system, all our sewage waste goes um, through a worm farm and actually goes onto our veggie patch and, and fertilizes the fruit trees and the veggies. The, you know, there's no toxic, we didn't use any glues. We didn't use like the, the we used Lux soap to seal the timber on the roof. There's a whole heap of recycled materials in there that came out of places like wards. And um, after 12 years, you know, it's still a beautiful place to live in. It hasn't really aged. And um, I use things like galvanized um, wind steel frame windows. I didn't know they were fire resistant. I use them because I know that galvanized steel is really easy to recycle. The zinc um, can be recycled as well. So I didn't want a powder coated window because I knew how wasteful powder coating is. So again, all these things, I kind of went back to basics because for me it was about how easy is this material to be recycled. And so I've never had to paint my windows. I've never had to um, worry about, they're actually getting more beautiful as they're getting older. So I find going back to basics is where it's at. And there's so many, um, it's, it's, it's actually really energizing and promising to hear that a lot of the companies that have been around for a long time are suddenly becoming popular because I think people are understanding that yeah, maybe um, using materials like linoleum, like uh, four by linoleum, nearly um, shut down in Holland in the 1980s. And um, that, you know, for, since 1860, I think they've been making linoleum. And in the 1960s, vinyl became really popular. Petroleum was much easier, it's much cheaper to use, and it was a much easier product to lay. So all the hospitals pulled out linoleum when they did refurbs and started putting in uh, vinyl. And vinyl became hugely popular in households as well. Well, uh, Forbo is now expanding their factory. They can't com compete. And again, it's a product that was designed in the 1860s. It's completely natural. It's made from linseed. The fiber of the linseed is used as well as the oil from the seed. And one of the most amazing things that I discovered when I was in Cuba about um, 17 years ago 
was that all the hospitals in uh, Cuba still used, because most of the vinyl came out of the US, so Cuba decided we're not trading with the US, so we'll just keep using linoleum because it comes from Holland. But um, Cuba had not one case of golden staff ever coming out of a hospital. And scientists in uh, Italy actually started to, well, what are they doing that's different to the rest of the world? Because golden staff occurs everywhere. And uh, a lot of chemicals used to try and keep this under control. And what they discovered was that the linoleum naturally ha had something natural in it that actually didn't allow golden staff to even live on, it, on, it, on its surface, a bit like a wooden chopping block. So this kind of, this research took off and suddenly all the hospitals are pulling out vinyl and putting linoleum back in, you know? So, so, so it's, I think it's really, um, really exciting time because people are understanding that the greenwash is there. You, um, the beauty about like my kids see through bullshit so much quicker than we do because I think they've grown up with it through social media and um, they're aware of what goes on. And I think companies are now being called out for doing what they're doing. And I think that the transition is happening really quickly. And yeah, for me, I think it's a really exciting time. Thanks, Joost. So what's the most exciting product you've seen lately? What are you, I know you're looking at, you've got a new project in the works. Are you allowed to talk about that at this point? Yeah, I'm building, okay. a, I'm building a house. Tell everyone. <laughs> so I'm, um, in 2016, I did my last major project, which was Brothel, which is a restaurant that took waste from, mostly from Rockpool, but also from Attica and European. And we turned that into food, which is, you know, exciting. But I kind of realized that the project was, that the work wasn't really, we were just basically finding a solution for a waste product. My work is always about moving beyond that like stopping the waste from being generated in the first place. So the food system is the most destructive thing that humans do on Earth. There's no doubt about that. What we eat is, has the most detrimental effect on the planet, without doubt. I think all of the carbon emissions from flying, transport, planes, trains, uh, trucks, is 17% of the world's emissions. Our food is 58. So changing the, the what we eat, how we eat, and where we grow our food has the most dramatic effect. So I've been, for the last five years, working on, which is always actually the idea behind the first greenhouse, grow food where you live, because that's where you're generating the waste. Where you're generating wa waste, what we see as waste is actually nutrients for plants. Where we, the water that we talk about, that can be used for growing food, like I'm doing at home. So I'm finally, with the help of FedSquare, building a prototype of a house that's totally um, standalone, totally zero waste. And my goal is on 100 square meters to grow 3,000 kilos of food. And the food is very diverse. It's actually inspired by the diet that was analyzed in the 1920s of Australian Aboriginals by an American doctor who believed that Australian, primitive Australian Aboriginals had the best diet in the world. Um, they're having 10 times more fat-soluble vitamins on average and a much more diverse diet, eating between three and 400 different types of food over the course of a year. And so I've actually modeled the food system of the house on what Aboriginals ate prior to us arriving. And uh, I'm hoping to be able to achieve like a, a much better diet for us. And not only that, it's, growing, it's, it's reliant on us creating a closed system, you know, so it's got like a biodigester that creates gas for cooking and then that transforms the waste into, Ross and I were just talking about that, transforms it like a cow's stomach into something that's quite valuable for plants. 
And uh, we've got uh, on-site aquaponics systems and um, freshwater mussels and uh, mushrooms and snails and, you know, 100 plus different species of plants. And um, yeah, like I'll give you one example, like tiger nuts that we're growing, which is a grass. It's actually considered in Australia one of the worst weeds. Uh, can't be killed by Roundup, can you believe it? But, you know, again, going back to, I thought this is a primitive food, but it's actually, we've been eating it for between 1.6 and 2.4 million years. And it was estimated that uh, one and a half million years ago, it made up 80% of our diet. So we were really reliant on this thing called a tiger nut. And uh, because Matt and Joe are going to be living in this house, Matt Stone and Joe Barrett, two chefs, they're obsessed with milk. So what do we do for milk? I said, tiger nuts. And they're going, what? So I'm getting all these text messages from them going, oh my God, this stuff is amazing. Well, guess what? It's probably growing right here. You know, it's, it grows everywhere. And we, it's just about kind of understanding that there's so many solutions that already exist. What do you do when you grow food in an urban location? The food system might look a little bit different. Barramundi is a brilliant fish to grow in an aquaponic system. Carp, um, we've got so many different things. So yeah, it's a really exciting project. So come and check it out from August this year at Fed Square. How long are they gonna be living in the house for? Uh, till May. Yeah, 2021. I hope anyway, that's if they... <laughs> we'll have to get some blinds. <laughs> um, and Ross, I'm flabbergasted about CH2. Where did they go wrong? <laughs> um, this is Mel Council House, City of Melbourne. You probably all know of it as, you know, it's meant to be, was meant to be the, um, you know, great sustainable building of the... The, Last decade. It's kind of a bit of a thing with uh, sustainable buildings that people want to throw lots of bells and whistles on um, and not necessarily focus on the boring stuff that actually makes an impact. That, that building was intentionally meant to be an experiment. Like it was designed to test a whole bunch of diff techno different technology. Basically what happened was the design team came up with a whole bunch of concepts early on and then... Uh, I don't think it was, like most projects, concept moved into detailed design, documentation, implementation, and then operations. And that wasn't an idea that was consistently followed through. Um, so it was quite theoretical at the beginning, and then that wasn't updated as it went, basically. And so I was doing the energy monitoring on it for its first year of performance. And it took until we got to the end of the first year that we were like, wow, this is really using a lot and so yeah it was three times more energy than the average office building and on one hand it was basically um i don't know where it's at now but it's interesting that the information's not disclosed for a project that was supposed to be an experiment and uh, you know and i think that was sort of you know part of the maybe embarrassment of it not being what it's supposed to be but the plaque still says it and it's it's funny and and i guess I find this is a lot of what is really important for consumers to be aware of is like just because you get a six star rating or a five star rating or something, you know, it's like, what does that actually mean? You know, it's like, but, you know, like the, the five star Nathurst, people are sort of selling a lot of these rating systems like they're actually doing something. And there's so, the, 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 I, I had um, the house in Dalesford, I had the, this um, wasn't your magazine, but it was a sustainable magazine. What's your star rating? I said, I don't have a clue. Yeah. But, well, but, we, we won't do a story until we get it rated. And I said, well, it's got no air conditioning and <laughs> doesn't need any heating and it's insulated with straw and it's got a, you know, but that wasn't good enough. It, it yeah. needed somebody to go and classify it. 
And and like I had the so I was working on a development recently, townhouses, and we were helping the client to make it a, a net zero energy building. We were pushing to get as much solar on as possible and drive the demand down of the building as much as possible. And the feedback from the client was that they really wanted to get the rating because that's what people wanted. You know, they wanted it to be best excellent, which is the local council tool. Best excellent you can get from having 5% of your energy generated on the building, minimum compliance water, and you, but you need to grow lots of plants on the building, which on one hand, you know, benefits, but like these, the, the actual metrics are weak. And so to me, there's a lot of misalignment and it's like all, a lot of those ratings, like Green Star, Neighbours, Neighbours is pretty good actually, but Nat, Nathurst, Green Star, Bess, they're all targeting helping developers do a little bit more. And, uh, I, you know, the, even seeing where new council's codes are coming out, they're not in line with being zero impact. And, and to give you some context on that, because it sounds like it might be expensive, but we've been working with Lend-Lease on the future of how they're supposed to do their new buildings. And Lend-Lease is like, you know, they're... they're cold-hearted developer that are profit-driven and that's, you know, the, the nature of their business and it's understandable. The feedback from them is that they're like, we would love to do this stuff once it becomes, but we, until they make it mandatory, we're not going to do it because why would we do that ahead of everyone else? And then, so what we did was proactively do a study for them on when, when it comes, how are they going to do it? You know, when it becomes mandatory, how will they achieve that? And, we, and I knew from the get-go, because we work with developers all the time, and we can help them meet net zero, triple net zero, water neutral, zero waste, and 100% um, uh, renewable on, on buildings um, for 10% extra. And it'll pay for itself in 10 years. 90% of the, the, those projects we provide advice on, they don't do it, because it's 10% extra. So but then least we were like, all right, screw it, let's try and work out net positive cost neutral. So we found out a way that you can actually build a 600, 600 apartments and it costs them less to build. Um, so on day one, they actually save three million bucks to build the thing. It'll cost the consumer 10% less in annual operating costs. An external organization finances some of that, the gap. The consumer pays the bills off each year after seven years. It's basically running at like, instead of the overall building cost $2.4 million to run, it costs 100 grand to run. So there are these ways of doing these things, but the emphasis is much more on the like, what stars is it? You know, tell me the stars rather than how is it actually performing? I might uh, open it up. I'm sure there's lots of questions. <laughs> We've got a roving mic out there somewhere. Tom's got it. Um, there's one here, Tom. Um, I'll just stand up. Hello. Uh, I've got a question. Hi, Ross. Um, I've got a question about retrofitting and transitioning. Um, what, what do you think will happen or what would you advise should happen with all of the potential landfill that would come out of that? So uh, gas appliances, the engineered wood, um, you mentioned cement and styrofoam, all of this like pretty massive amounts of landfill waste that could come out of it, what would you recommend? 
Well, currently a lot of it's actually already being recycled. It's, um, the, especially if the building's older, um, there's a lot of value in those, th that equipment, especially uh, heating equipment and copper. And so it's quite surprising how much of it, because it's just part of the, it's a co competitive thing. It's actually more expensive to dump it. So, you know, they're, they're really good at recycling those materials. It's the ones that are built in the last 10 years that are really bad. Um, there's, uh, especially 10 years ago, a lot of uh, transition over from, you know, this is like, uh, instead of putting 35 screws in a sheet, you can put 12 uh, screws in a sheet by using glue. So you now go onto building sites and there's pallets of glue. And so that means that you've got materials being stuck to steel studs or timber studs or whatever with glue, which makes them both impossible to recycle. You know, the plasterboard is a really valuable fertilizer. Uh, it's the best fertilizer lime that you could buy. But if it's got the, that glue particle in it, farmers don't want it, especially if you're a certified organic. You can't take that kind of waste. So it does my head in that, we've, that we're not demanding builders to just take that little bit more time because it's all about time and, and make sure that we put things together so that they can be pulled apart and recycled and reused or even better recycled back into the same material. Anyone else? I'm sorry. It, uh, give me a, an example of... Uh... Uh, I guess with the example that you just gave, Let's so that, need that, to... that's the question. What are we going to do with those materials what do we that do with are it? useless now? Hmm. Uh, yeah, well, you know, in Europe, in Sweden, they're incinerating it, they're burning it, getting a little bit of energy, which I hate. I just, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm not a big fan of... Uh, that's another great greenwash that the Danes and the Dutch... Well, Holland's actually moving away from it. They've just voted that they're not going um, any further with waste to energy and they're actually going to start closing plants and focusing more on 100% resource recovery. But Sweden has now built this whole business out of, they're actually getting waste from Italy and England and that's what they're doing with those materials. Um, here they'll end up in landfill. The EPA makes it very difficult to actually set up businesses that um, try and recycle problematic materials. We need to push for the manufacturers, you know, re regulate that they deal with them, you know, the waste that they produce that can't be got rid of. I think yeah. <laughs> it's one way. Um, any other questions? Over right over there, in a jog. <laughs> Thanks. Hey, how you doing? Um, I have a question regarding the uh, the house you built twelve years ago. How foreseeable do you think it is that f for the growing population that houses like that are going to be able to be built? as quick as the Metricon homes that we're competing against. Um, how is it that we put houses out there like that as quick as possible with those kinds of materials? Like how do you foresee something like that happening? Well, they can be built just as quick, if not quicker. I built my place in eight months. It's, and that's, I didn't even know what I was doing. So there's with access to the materials and all that for the demand of the population, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, there's yeah. the materials already exist. There's companies like there's a great company in Bendigo that has been going for 70 years, 70, 74, 76 years that make um, panels, compressed straw panels out of nothing. All they use is straw. 
and, and a paper finish. So you can use it as an external cladding, you can render the outside, you can use it as internal stud walls. I, I use it internally um, as a 50 mil stud wall. It means you don't need a stud wall. You can actually span 3.6 meters. And this company is only running at one quarter capacity. And, you know, I went to one farm a few weeks ago and they said, for the last four years, we've sold $50,000 worth of straw and we got um, Ortec to write the check out to the local football club because for us, straw is a waste product and we just get our kids to come and bail the straw at night and we're happy to give the money to the football club, you know. So there's thousands of farmers there that could actually easily um, supply these materials and at the end of the building's life, you know, there's, there's houses um, that was actually invented in Sweden in the 1930s and there's houses that are still standing in Sweden with this material in it. And there's thousands of houses in Australia that have this material in it as well. So, the, yeah, we, the, there's no reason why these houses can't be built like that now. And, and as economically, um, as cheap as well. It's just, it's just, we've got a stupid system and we've got a, because we're building hundreds of thousands of them, there's, we've got really fast at building something really stupid, you know, and so we can actually do just as fast, but do it sustainably. Awesome. Thanks. Um, we've got a question in the middle, Tom. Hi, I'm Nisha. Um, very familiar with your work, Juice. Um, I've been to Brottle, been to Silo, and I've just been to Acre. And okay. yeah, I've just, I'm all about food sustainability, um, innovation and education, and I'm currently working on a startup as well. So I'd like to hear your take on like the future of food present as well in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, it, even globally. And I'd like to hear from you as well, Ross. Yeah. Well, there's, there's um, no doubt in my mind that our food system is, you know, stuffed. It's broken. It's badly broken. So last year we used 500 million tons of synthetic fertilizer, which is made from gas. So synthetic fertilizer, without it, it's estimated that between five and six billion of us would starve tomorrow. So if we had to rely on the, the, the way that we've developed our, our infrastructure and our sewage system and our nutrient collection, um, we would pretty much starve without synthetic fertilizer. And the problem with synthetic fertilizer is it only provides three elements, which are the three elements that plants love and they grow. And so it actually allows plants to just go crazy, but it doesn't supply all the micronutrients like calcium, manganese, iron, um, selenium. So we are all so deficient in these micronutrients because our food system is no longer supplying them to us. And that's why I think we need a complete turnaround and a complete localization of food and we need to grow food where we live because that's where we're generating the nutrients that the plants need to close the loop. And, um, you know, that's, that's, that's what I think the future is. We need to completely change. I mean, look, we've all ended up with Mildura soil on our roofs and on our cars. And, you know, the, the destruction of our farmland globally is a disgrace. And the loss of habitat, the logging is happening faster today than it has ever in human history. Yet we're all so aware of it. We all get like feed on our feeds on our Instagram showing we've got to stop deforestation, but it's happening right now faster than at any time in history because 
We need fresh soil. We're constantly craving fresh soil. We need more land to grow this food. And then I've been to Brazil. I've seen it with my own eyes. The land that was deforested 10 years ago is worthless. You know, so we've got to just change that. We can't rely on that food system anymore. I, I, I don't have a lot to comment on the food side of things. I think you got this. Man. We talk about it over, over lunch, though. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone? Another question over here. Uh, hi, my name's Tom. Um, given a large percentage of uh, the younger population in Melbourne aren't going to be able to afford housing uh, of their own in the next decades. Uh, what do you recommend for, for the people that don't own their homes to be able to do the modifications to retrofit to make them uh, suitable for um, the coming climate? The, um, there's, there's a lot of things actually, but... Um the first one and the most important one is that um, Australian houses are really leaky. And uh, I don't know about where you're living, but in my place, like, the, when it got smoky in Melbourne, it was smoky in my house. And um, it's actually quite cost-effective to um, be able to seal your own place, basically. So that's, like, one thing that you can do and dramatically reduce your um, cost of your house and it doesn't have to cost you a lot. Um, but I'm in a similar situation, renting and um, don't necessarily have the ability to control it. And I've tried to do things like that. Like I've tried to install a solar system and the landlord won't allow it. I've tried to um, transform into a heat pump and the landlord won't allow it. Um, so there's certain uh, barriers there that I think are huge. Um, I, or I guess... I guess you can try, and you can try and write to your landlord about it, but really, um, to me, this is where bigger picture we need to bring in mandatory retrofits across the city. And, um, you know, and that's something that... I know City of Sydney, for example, brought out... A, a bring, they're currently doing the study on a new net zero code for all new buildings in Sydney. And Melbourne are close to releasing their new codes. And for both situations, there's no consideration of existing buildings. And so um, until it becomes mandatory, um, even though as long as the owner and the consumer are not the same thing, it's, it's going to be a huge issue no matter whether it's a home, an office, an apartment building, you know, the, the, you know even a public building. Even, you know. So um, it's, yeah... I mean, there, I, I guess I could tell you, I don't know, do you want more details on, like, I mean, lights and switch your power over to 100% renewable energy and um, put in really efficient shower heads and taps? There's, like, for $25, you can put a thing on your tap that uses 90% less water. Um, showers are huge because it's, like, 200 litres of water per shower on average. And that's also a lot of hot water at the same time. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I actually think that there's going to, what's, what's going to happen is there's a, going to be a huge cultural shift and people won't want to live in those big McMansions in the, near, the suburbs that are not that far from here. And I think that they'll end up being the new energised areas where people will, you know, split those buildings up. They won't demolish them. They'll split them up and you'll have three or four um, um, 
couples living in there or because it just won't be cool to live in a big place on a quarter acre block and so there's huge potential in Melbourne for, to get a much denser population into those areas that are actually not even that far from Melbourne and um, I, I think that that's what's going to happen. Those, those places that are now worth a million bucks or 1.2 million bucks, those houses in the not too distant suburbs will end up being places where nobody wants to live and it's already happening. People are moving out, they want to move into more denser populated areas, they move, want to move into apartments and that leaves those areas ripe as the value of those areas drops. I've seen it happen in Holland too. Um, they'll be ripe for the younger people to come through and set up studios and workspaces and, and um, become the next places for them to reside and much more exciting places. What do you think about um, urban sprawl and limiting urban sprawl um, to improve sustainability? And in particular, what are your thoughts about land trusts, particularly uh, farmland trusts? I don't even know what land trust, what, what is land trust? A land trust is where you uh, have a legal arrangement where you cannot uh, develop the land. Um, so a farmland trust is where love that. it mm. must remain farmland. So Marin County in Northern California is most famous for this. Um, so farm trust allows you to preserve the land, say around Melbourne, that's currently farmland uh, and not become McMansions. Yeah, I've, I live in an area like that, which is, um, it's called the Red Soil Legislation, which was enacted in by both sides of um, state government in 1978, I think it was. And uh, it protects the red soils of the Dandenong Ranges because that's where most of the cherries and strawberries and, you know, it's the best soil in Australia, basically. And so last year or two years ago for the first time since then, the state government themselves overturned and allowed a soccer, two soccer pitches to be built on best farmland. So that, but there are examples of that here and I can't see it changing. But then you look at places like Kuriwrap and here where you see that, you know, this incredible soil being covered with um, urban uh, developments of the worst urban developments you've ever seen, you know. So, yeah, I don't know what to say about that. It's pretty bad. And, um, the uh, sprawl, yeah, fuck urban sprawl. Um, uh, we need to do something about it. They did try and do something about it and then they changed the law and allowed it again. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's always on my mind that... Um, you know, it is strange how we're creating these mega cities in Australia and not decentralizing. Um, I forget the name of what it's called, but they're trying to build a um, high-speed train line between Melbourne and Sydney to create a number of smaller cities. Um, but I guess that's one way of tackling or, or densifying the existing city, um, which would be much more logical um, and creating, even within the city of Melbourne, to create more centres where people are not necessarily all coming into the centre. Um, when you look at the future transport plan of Melbourne, it's pretty um, unambitious um, and sort of a lot of limitations on how far public transport can go. And so cars are always sort of going to be a big part of the, the future of Melbourne based on the way it's currently um, uh, the, the urban planning. In terms of trusts, the only thing I've got to mention on there, something really cool that everyone should check out is um, treespace.co.nz. It's a project I'm working on. Um, it's a, it's kind of a nice balance of like, a, um, it's a, a commercial model for environmental rehabilitation. So it's not quite a land trust project, but they're basically, um, a client has 
acquired a mountain in Queenstown um, with the sole purpose of planting trees. Um, and then they're creating a community around that basically. So they bought the mountain, 50% of it will be planted with trees. Turns out there's new drone technology to plant trees really efficiently. And then there'll be about sort of enough small dwellings, 60 dwellings on the mountain just to pay for the trees basically on the mountain. So um, yeah, I, but. I think that's a really positive note to end on. So we might leave it there. Thank you, Ross. Thank you, Yost. Thank you all for coming. Thanks for coming in the rain. Yeah. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.